Okay, make your way over to Galatians, and we'll finish up chapter 2 today. Continue on here, and this is really the transition point in this text between Paul's defense of his apostleship and his explanation of his gospel and, the, and, and justification by faith alone. And so we will um, kind of make that transition with him this morning. Let's pray. Uh, Father, as your word says, without Jesus we can do nothing. Uh, through your word then, uh, illumined by your spirit, we ask that you would give us Jesus, the bread of life, that we could have life and have it abundantly. And protect us, we ask, from the sin of self-righteousness. And even now as I preach, I'm inclined toward that sin. And for the listeners as well, as, as each one of us sits at the feet of Jesus, may we not hear this word on behalf of other people, but hear it for ourselves and apply it rightly to our own lives. On the merits of Jesus, uh, we bring these requests to you with confidence. Amen. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. You recall from last week, verses 15 and 16, that, that Paul said even the Jews who were born, in a sense, sanctified, had to seek justification in Christ and not works of the law. And now as we go into this text, there's some um, people, hypothetical people, who are accusing Paul with this charge, you're making Christ a minister of sin. And so that's the charge that this passage deals with this morning. So Galatians 2, 17 through 21. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, Christianity is a religion that's filled with paradox. A paradox is an, an apparent contradiction that upon further study can be resolved to not be a contradiction. So one example, as we, we worked through First Peter a number of months ago, is this paradox of suffering and glory, that we get glory by suffering. Another example from, from James, uh, rejoice in trials. It's paradoxical. Why should I be happy when I'm going through bad things? Both Peter and James uh, really take a different angle of approach on a very similar paradox. Peter uh, says that suffering brings glory through union with Christ, that we share in his sufferings as he suffered, and we will share in his glory as he was glorified. And in James, um, trials test our faith, which yields a harvest of Christ-like qualities in us, which is um, ultimately good for us. So again, a paradox is a contradiction, an apparent contradiction, uh, that on further examination finds resolution. 
And our text is really one of those paradoxical texts. There's a couple of them here this morning. This idea that we uh, find righteousness in a person who makes us look like sinners, or rather reveals our sin. We find righteousness in this person who makes us look sinful. It's paradoxical. Another one is that life comes through death. Life comes through dying. These are paradoxes over which the Jews particularly were prone to stumble in in Galatia and over which we can easily also stumble. And these paradoxes are really at the heart of Paul's gospel here in Galatians. Um, So the main idea or the main exhortation from this morning is endeavor to become alive to God through the minister of righteousness which is Christ. Endeavor to be alive to God through the minister of righteousness. Or we could state it negatively, which is really the way Paul does it. Do not seek to obtain life through your own righteousness. Um, We're in a season of human history where self-help, self-esteem, self-improvement, self-actualization, self, these are all the substance of the therapeutic gospel that we desire. And so this message is paradoxical to us. It's really to to pet the cat in the wrong direction. So we need to further examine Paul's curious gospel and untangle the paradox. Um, So I've structured the message in in the form of two paradoxical questions, and then with following that with answers to both questions. So the first paradoxical question is, should we seek righteousness in one who makes us sinners? And the air quotes are important. Makes us sinners. Should we seek righteousness through one in one who makes us sinners? Uh, I was thinking about how this message fits into our time and place and into us and how it applies and, and the, the whole self-help uh, righteousness came to mind in our context, and I thought, well, that's something that we at, at TRC aren't so prone to adopt, are we? I mean, we hear about that stuff and we get itchy and squirmy. We're, we're, we're not prone to adopt these therapeutic gospels, are we? And unfortunately, I'll speak for myself, not for you, but I am prone, and I am the product of my time more than I want to admit. So, An example, in the context of my own sanctification, there are things that I want to change about myself. Habits I want to break, uh, character flaws that I'd like to change and and fix. Now, the proper response to such flaws is not really to call them flaws, but to call them sin. And, And the proper response is not repair, but repentance. I was thinking about that this week, and really it's quite liberating. There's a dual benefit of both freeing me from guilt, because I brought it to the cross at that point, and and because I'm relying on the Holy Spirit rather than my own self-discipline, it actually has a chance of working, (laughs) of changing my bad habits. So in in a sort of self-help, self-religious religion, whether it be our version or the one in Antioch or the one in Galatia, Good character qualities can take the place of the gospel. Honor, strength, heritage, legacy, maybe lineage. You know, the Jews, we are of Abraham, we are of the covenant. We're sanctified people of God. 
or, or in our day, in our country, we're, we're the land of the free and the home of the brave. We're a do-it-yourself people. We, we make things happen. We're independent. We're industrious. We possess a never-ending supply of ingenuity and a kind of noble status of honor and superiority can overtake us or just a general desire to, to be good and solid, contributing members of society. Now, of course, all these things in their right context are good things. But it's very bad when we trust those things for our standing before God. And that's really the question we're dealing with here, right? That's what justification is about, our standing before God. So the question at hand is that of justification, being declared righteous before the judge of the universe. Uh, Thomas Schreiner helpfully points out here that a judge is not somebody who makes somebody righteous. A criminal comes in, he can't make him righteous. Or an innocent person comes in, he doesn't make that person innocent. He just looks at the evidence and makes a verdict. He declares one way or the other, righteous or not, guilty or not. Uh, Paul and the Judaizers had different perspectives on how we can obtain that declaration of righteousness for ourselves. The Jews, um, much like Paul as a Pharisee pre-conversion, sought the declaration through law-keeping, through doing good works. And this mindset followed some of the Jewish Christians into the church as they became to be converted. And they believed in Jesus, they believed in grace, but let's not do away with all of the law-keeping before God. Surely God wouldn't declare an uncircumcised person righteous. He wouldn't declare a breaker of the food laws righteous. These are the very things that mark us out as the holy people of God. How can he declare a person righteous if if they do not observe the things which make us holy, which make us separate? So they would say, no, certain laws must be kept if we're going to stand before God as holy and righteous people. (coughs) So this is kind of where the framework for for where the question comes from, verse 17. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? And that word servant is diakonos, which we get our word deacon from, servant, or um, in this case, I think the best translation is minister. It's a person who's charged with making an announcement of something. So I I prefer that translation. Is Christ then a minister of sin? Is he announcing sin? So the implicit accusation here is that your system, Paul, even makes Jews to be sinners, just like the Gentile sinners. Remember from, from verse 15, he called them Gentile sinners because they weren't a member of the sanctified community of God. So you're making all of us, including Jews, just like them. You're leveling the playing field. You're making us sinners. You make Christ to be a minister or announcer of sin because your understanding of justification um, makes it so that no one is righteous and everyone's a sinner. So in a sense, they're saying if justification is apart from works, there's no actual righteousness. It's very much like the Roman Catholic objection to biblical justification. You people make justification into a legal fiction is what they would say 
a legal fiction. In other words, there's this sort of legal declaration of righteousness, but it doesn't make anybody actually righteous. And they have a problem with that. So, the question is, is Christ a minister of sin? Does he make us sinners? And of course, (laughs) no. That's why I made sure to say that the air quotes were important. Jesus doesn't make us sinners, but what he does do is reveal our sin to us. So that conditional statement at the beginning of verse 17 is true. In our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we are, everybody, including the Jews, are found to be sinners. That is true. Justification levels the playing field and everybody is a sinner. And the paradoxical question is, should we really seek a declaration of righteousness from someone who proves that we're sinners? And of course, you know, the short answer is yes. And we'll get into a more robust answer as we move on. But before we do move on, uh, just consider that question for a moment, because this is really what we're asking unbelieving friends and family to believe when we implore them to believe the gospel. Uh, particularly, I think, if they're respectable, high-functioning members of society, that, that we're saying all of your own merits, all of your redeeming quality, all of your honor, all of your philanthropic activities, your morality, your highly developed personal code of ethics, all of that means nothing in the law court of God. Pretty offensive. We're saying set all that aside, confess you are a sinner, and look only to Jesus for your standing before God. So, to me, it makes perfect sense. Of course, this is the accusation that the unbelieving world would level against the Christian gospel. You turn Jesus into a judge. All I hear from you is that I'm not good enough for God. That's the accusation. Your Jesus is a minister of sin. His message is, you're a sinner and you can't do anything by yourself. Does the gospel of justification in Christ really make Jesus a minister of sin? Paul says, certainly not. Of course not. And why not? And his answer is also uh, paradoxical. I'll put it in in the form of a a second question. (laughs) This is the second paradoxical question is, should we find life in death? Should we seek to find life in death? This is probably one of the greatest Christian paradoxes. It's like Jesus said, whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Again, remember, we're telling people, die and you will find life. The man that you are now needs to be put to death, and and you need to be reborn as a new man, and then you will find life. I mean, how strange, really, Christians are. This message is very odd. I could just hear people say, what are you talking about? I'm living just fine to the fullest right now. Thank you very much. I'll be fine at the judgment. I'm a pretty good person. Look at my life's work. What do you mean, die to live? It's absurd. Paul's prior life, he was committed to the law. He was dedicated to the law. And his hope was in law-keeping. His life was bound up in law-keeping. And his hope of future life was drawn from law-keeping. 
In verse 19, he says, For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I think we're safe to to reverse that here. I think it's helpful logically. It helped me anyways. Beforehand, he was alive to the law and was dead to God. And now he's died to the law and is alive to God. So then what Paul tore down, he says in verse 18 that he, he tore down. What he tore down was this sort of masterpiece life he had crafted for himself around the law. He had sculpted himself into this beautiful image of a lawkeeper, but like Iraqis with the Saddam statue, he ripped it down and beheaded it. And what stood in its place was Paul, this mere flesh and blood mortal with nothing to offer God but a need for grace. So what he's saying, I think, in verse 18 is if he rebuilt that statue, it would only compound his sin. He he would prove himself, he says, to be a transgressor. (coughs) And the reason that would be he would be a transgressor is because the law cannot be kept. And it only leads to death, condemnation and sin. Uh, It's interesting in Second Corinthians three, Paul calls the Mosaic covenant, the ministry of death and the ministry of condemnation. In Romans 5, he says that through the law comes knowledge of sin. In 1 Corinthians 15, that the power of sin is the law. So beforehand, Paul was living to that which brought him uh, death. That was to the law. He was alive to, to death, in essence, and dead to that which brought him life. That is God. And now it's reversed. He has died to the law that he might live to God. So to summarize here, I find this passage to be very complicated. So I'll try to summarize from my perspective where we ha- have arrived so far, uh, as best I can put it together. Um, yes, it's true that seeking justification in Christ levels the playing field. It, everyone is a sinner, unable to earn a verdict of righteousness. However, just because Jesus uncovers our sin doesn't make him a minister of righteousness. Because in Jesus we have died to that which was killing us and have begun to live unto him who gives life. And because of that death and new life, therefore it would be foolish to reconstruct an old life which would only serve to prove that we are in fact unrighteous and unable to keep the law. So really what Paul is doing here is he's turning the tables on his accusers. It's they who are promoting sin by demanding that people live under the law, under the ministry of sin and death and condemnation. (coughs) I want to take just a a very brief aside here. I think it's somewhat important, but to say the law is not bad. (laughs) We hear all these things like the law is death and condemnation and the ministry of, of death. But the law is not bad. It is good, it is holy, it proceeds from the very mind and character of God. And I think one of the ways that we tend to get all tied up in knots is by failing to distinguish justification from salvation. 
salvation is the big category and justification is a very narrow slice of that category, albeit very important slice. Uh, but when we come to passages like this one, we, we, which is decidedly a justification passage, some people will, will read, I died to the law, and they'll read that into the whole of Christian experience. So that when somebody like me comes up here and says, we should be, obey the Ten Commandments, I get accused of legalism. Well, no, we've died to the law. <clears throat> but we have to remember this is a justification passage so we have to make a distinction between law keeping as meritorious grounds for justification and law keeping as a necessary fruit of spirit born sanctification um, so that's a brief digression and we'll I'm sure have much more on that topic as we go along. But as Luther said, uh, we do not dispute whether we ought to do good works, whether the law is holy, righteous, and good, or whether it ought to be kept or not. Um, This is another matter. Our question concerns justification and whether the law justifies or not. Our enemies will answer this question, will not answer this question, or make any distinction as we do, but only cry out that good works ought to be done that the law ought to be observed. We know that well enough. But because there are various different matters, we will not mix them up. So his point is, we're talking about justification here. There is a whole other category of, should we keep the law? But that's not what we're talking about here. And the brief answer is, yes, we should keep the law. Uh, so we press on with the topic at hand, justification, and how we can be made right before God. Um, justification which upon which our, our law-keeping doesn't impact at all if we're in Christ. And being in Christ is where we will turn next. So now to answer our two questions, the second one first, should we find life in death? And of course the answer is yes, we should find life in death. So how does life come about? How does this life come about? How does the change from life or death to life occur in a person? Do we just wake up one morning and decide, I'm going to die to sin and I'm going to live to God? Actually, the source of both the death and the life that we need are found in Christ, and specifically this union with Christ. This is the language. All throughout Paul, we have this, these words, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, union with Christ. Uh, to quote Keith Green, he is divine and you are de branch. <laughs> if, we're, if we're to be alive, we must be united to the source of all life. We're united to Christ, according to Scripture, through the instrumentality of faith, by believing in Jesus. Faith is that empty hand with which we reach out, take hold of all the promises and blessings of Christ. And the New Testament is clear is that when we're united to Christ by faith, we share in his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, and his ascension. So our death to the law, in order that we might live unto God, comes by way of that share in Christ's death. I think that's what Paul means. You notice from verse 18 that I skipped over this really hard phrase, but I think this is what he means by it. In verse uh, 19, rather, He says, for through the law, what does that mean? For through the law, I died to the law. Um, There's many views on this. One being that 
Paul recognizes I'm, I can't live up to the law and that, that puts to death my desire to keep the law. Uh, but that, that, that may be right. But I think the, the more uh, robust understanding is that through Christ's being born under the law, his keeping the law, his fulfilling the law, his bearing the curse of the law on our behalf, by that, by our union with Christ, he died to the law. So now that the, the law which held such sway over my life and over my conscience no longer punishes me with guilt or a constant drive to measure up, but instead I delight to keep the Lord's law. His commandments are good because he's given me a new life and written the law on my heart. First John 5, 2-4 gives us this notion. But by this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. So this is how Paul describes the new union life here in verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. He's been crucified with Christ. He died. His old man died at the cross. And now it's not he who lives, but Christ who lives in him by his Holy Spirit. Uh, now, that doesn't mean that, that Paul's body has been hijacked by like the supernatural entity and he's some kind of passive vessel. But ra- rather, his, what he's saying is his life is vine life. His life doesn't proceed from within himself, but it proceeds from the vine. Without Christ, he is a branch which shrivel and die, but in Christ he's alive and vibrant and a fruit-yielding branch. To me, it's, this is not a perfect analogy, but it's a bit like a, a graft. You know, we were once united to the world, a, really a natural branch feeding from that tree. And then now we've been grafted onto Christ and are being nourished and sustained by Him. Uh, but in order for that change to happen, we, we have to be locked off of the first tree. We have to be severed from that old tree. Now this next phrase is fascinating in the last half of chapter, or verse 20. <coughs> and the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Um, so Paul typically doesn't use the Greek word sarks for when he's talking about like our physical bodies. That, that's the Greek word soma. But here he says, uh, I mean, sarks usually refers to, to fallen humanity, our fallen flesh. And it's here, it's fascinating. He says, the life I now live in the flesh, or the life I now live in the sarks. And I don't know that this is true, but I think that what he's saying is that the life I now live in that sort of Roman 7 struggle with my old man, I live by faith in the substitutionary sacrifice of Christ. So even in this, this time where we're in, in the in-between, between wrestling with the old man and the new man, that faith was not just the 
initiating instruments, but it is the ongoing instrument whereby we continue to, to hold fast to the vine. Notice too also here, Paul's changed in posture. The old Paul, the one that he tore down, would have lived a life of, of you know, chest puffed up, trying to please God with all of his might. And now he's this passive object of love. He says, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He's a recipient. So it is through death that we find life. Death to the law is our, um, or rather death to the law, which was formerly our, our, we attempted to make it our fountain of living waters, but it only yielded that, that bitter water. And now life to God, we have the source of all life. We have true living water. By union with Christ, we thereby die and find life. Now to turn finally to the answer of our very first paradoxical question, which was, should we seek to find righteousness in someone who makes us sinners or shows that we're sinful? And of course, yes, we should seek to find righteousness from him. Of course, it's obvious to us from a Christian perspective, having been steeped in that language, that that's the answer. But it's totally counterintuitive to our natural man, to our flesh. You find my declaration in right, of righteousness by looking to another person for righteousness. It, it, again, it's bizarre. I want to do it myself. I want to prove to myself I can do it. I want those accolades of, of reaching the top of the mountain by myself, on my own steam, my own ingenuity, my own right choices. But the problem with that is it, it makes us into a, a, a Sisyphus, men condemned to push the rock up the hill for eternity and never getting anywhere. And then when this life is over, I won't have anything to show for that. So righteousness that comes through the law is earned righteousness. It's like a wage. We work for it. But the problem is we'll never earn enough to pay off the debt we owe. Because our first sin was an act of rebellion against an infinitely holy God. So the question is, how much merit would we need to accrue to repay the debt of one sin? Rather, I think we need to be declared righteous through grace and not through works. A grace that comes not from the law, but from the death of the God-man, of Jesus. He died for us to take upon himself the curse of my lawlessness to grant me righteousness by faith. And so then I can stand legally justified, declared righteous in God's presence. That holds weight in God's courts. So that's really what Paul's saying here when he concludes this section in verse 21. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. That, that really sums up the whole thing for me. Justification by faith alone in Christ alone reveals my sinfulness. But really, that's the exact paradox we need to resolve if we're going to understand grace. We, we have to have our utter sinfulness revealed to us because that makes us run to Christ 
for righteousness. If I were still under the delusion that I was actually righteous, that my justification was not just a legal fiction, but it was making me righteous on my own accord, I would be seeking to earn life through my own labors. The beauty of the gospel is not that Christ died for the righteous, but that Christ died for sinners. Jesus is not a minister of sin. In fact, he is the one and only minister of righteousness. For through him is announced the gospel of God's grace that sinners can be declared righteous because he loved us and gave himself up for us. Amen.